Isaiah chapter 33. Isaiah 33, found on page 1108, if you're following along with the Pew Bibles in front of you. Since we're diving right into a chapter in the middle of Isaiah, I thought it'd be fitting if I just kind of acclimated us to this chapter. So in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 33, there is a woe that's pronounced against Assyria, which is one of the the most powerful nations on earth in that time, one that was really arrayed against God's people. Isaiah is prophesying to Judah which is, uh, it would be the southern kingdom of the, the kingdom of Israel when it's split in two. So Assyria was arrayed against Judah, and Isaiah pronounces this woe from God against Assyria. And then we have a prayer from Isaiah that God would hear their prayer, that he would vindicate them, that he would come and deliver his people. So that's the second part of this chapter, uh, Isaiah's prayer. And then there is a prophecy of judgment followed by blessing. So God says that he will come and he will judge, um, he will judge Assyria, he will remove them from being a threat to God's people. But then there's also a judgment that happens within the house of God. God says he's going to come and, and he's going to purge unrighteousness from within uh, Israel or Judah uh, itself. And then finally there is a prophecy of blessing in verses 17 through 24 which gives a, a beautiful vision of God being the king over his people and creating peace and prosperity uh, for them. And it's, it's uh, a vision that is given from the top of a mountain, God creating peace and justice and righteousness on the top of a, of a heavenly mountain. So with all of that in mind, let's turn uh, to this chapter, and I will read all of Isaiah chapter 33 for us. This is God's holy word. Let us give our attention to its reading. Woe to you, O destroyer, you who have not been destroyed. Woe to you, O traitor, you who have not been betrayed. When you stop destroying, you will be destroyed. When you stop betraying, you will be betrayed. O Lord, be gracious to us. We long for you. Be our strength every morning, our salvation in time of distress. At the thunder of your voice, the peoples flee. When you rise up, the nations scatter. Your plunder, O nations, is harvested as by young locusts. Like a swarm of locusts, men pounce on it. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. He will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. Look, their brave men cry aloud in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways are deserted. No travelers are on the roads. The treaty is broken. Its witnesses are despised. No one is respected. The land mourns and wastes away. Lebanon is ashamed and withers. Sharon is like the Arabah, and Bashan and Carmel drop their leaves. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now will I be exalted. Now will I be lifted up. You conceive chaff. You give birth to straw. Your breath is a fire that consumes you. 
The peoples will be burned as if to lime. Like cut thorn bushes, they will be set ablaze. You who are far away, hear what I have done. You who are near, acknowledge my power. The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with everlasting burning? He who walks righteously and speaks what is right, who rejects gain from extortion and keeps his hand from accepting bribes, who stops his ears against plots of murder and shuts his eyes against contemplating evil. This is the man who will dwell on the heights, whose refuge will be the mountain fortress. His bread will be supplied and Water will not fail him. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty and view a land that stretches afar. In your thoughts, you will ponder the former terror. Where is that chief officer? Where is the one who took the revenue? Where is the officer in charge of the towers? You will see those arrogant people no more, those people of an obscure speech with their strange, incomprehensible tongue. Look upon Zion. The city of our festivals, your eyes will see Jerusalem, Jerusalem, a peaceful abode, a tent that will not be moved. Its stakes will never be pulled up, nor any of its ropes broken. There the Lord will be our mighty one. It will be like a place of broad rivers and streams. No galley with oars will ride them, no mighty ship will sail them. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. It is he who will save us. Your rigging hangs loose, the mast is not held secure, the sail is not spread. Then an abundance of spoils will be divided, and even the lame will carry off plunder. No one living in Zion will say, I am ill, and the sins of those who dwell there will be forgiven. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but God's word endures forever. Amen. O come, O come, Lord of might. Christmas is the celebration of God with us. God with us. And it's good to celebrate that. It is right to celebrate that. But one thing that we must remember as we celebrate God with us is the awe that God's presence inspires. The power that God has. The might and the authority which he has. These are all things that can sometimes be lost in, in the more flowery parts of the Christmas story, right? The, the babe in the manger. But what about God's power? What about the, the, the ways in which God's presence strikes people with awe? We need to remember that. And yet we are to rejoice. Yet we are to be comforted with the Christmas season. But that does not mean there is no tension which is created in the truth of God with us. God coming to make his place with man. Isaiah 33 names that tension and thinks about it and expounds on it for us. The exalted God of the heavens coming to be with his people. The exalted God of the heavens coming to save his people. The joy of Christmas is partially found in knowing that the same God who spoke in power and glory from Mount Sinai, the one who gave the law, had to be the one who came as a servant, as the Lamb of God. The one who speaks from the heights of Mount Sinai is the one who comes as the Lamb of God. God in the heights who comes down to us in 
the depths. Isaiah 33 gives a glorious vision of a God atop a mountain who brings his people up to him. He summons them up to himself and he, and he brings them to himself to give them peace and prosperity and flourishing. But in order to bring us up, in order for all of that to be fulfilled, God first had to come down to us. Let's turn our attention then to Isaiah 33. This first verse is a, a magnificent achievement of, of poetry, and much of that majesty shines through in our English translation. You notice Isaiah keeps repeating words, uh, the, the words for destroy and betray. He uses each of those four times in different ways, and it's kind of like a, a tightly drawn circle. And the woe that he's pronouncing is, he's pronouncing, as I said, against Assyria, the people who are arrayed uh, against the people of God, who were probably their main threat, who could take away the blessing of living in the promised land. One thing that's important to understand about the book of Isaiah, though, is that oftentimes God tells the people of Judah that he's going to send these Assyrian people against them. Why? Because of their sin. Right? Because God's people have disobeyed the laws of God. They have disobeyed his word. And so oftentimes God says, I'm going to send a foreign nation to you. And I'm going to carry out my punishment towards you in and through them. But then verse 1 in our chapter is a woe pronounced against those people of Assyria. And basically what God is saying is that he's saying to Assyria, to the king of Assyria, Sennacherib at this point, if you think that you're the one changing the course of history, if you think that you are the chess master moving the pieces around on the board, you are mistaken. God holds even the heart of the king in his hand. He is sovereign and he says to the king of Sennacherib, when, I, when my purposes have been fulfilled in and through you, when you have destroyed all that I have appointed you to destroy, you too will be destroyed. That is the woe pronounced against these Assyrian people. In that God, uh, uh, God asserts once and for all that he is in control. God asserts once and for all that he is sovereign. The kings of the earth may think themselves mighty. They may think themselves even at times divine. But God is the one who directs the course of history. And uh, this woe pronounced against Assyria and the situation for God's people of Judah at this time shows how much the mission of God, the mission of God's people, has gotten off track by the time we get to the book of Isaiah. God says to Abraham, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. Blessed to be a blessing. That's not really the way that we would describe what is going on here, is it? Rather than Israel blessed to be a blessing, we have, we have Israel split into two kingdoms. Judah, now, not blessed to be a blessing, but cursed and the curse, that, uh, the, the, the punishments of the curse that have been pronounced against them, bringing Assyria against them, then Assyria is now going to experience further cursing from God. So blessed to be a blessing has gotten off track. Not only the people of God, but the land itself is experiencing this stress. You can see that in verses 7 through 9. Look specifically at verse 9. The land mourns and wastes away. Lebanon is ashamed and withers. Sharon is like the Arabah and Bashan and Carmel drop their leaves. All of these regions were known for their lush greenery. They were known for abundant crops and, 
and beautiful uh, large trees. So there's this ecological effect on the promised land that the land is not flourishing because of the stress that is put on it because of God's strained relationship with his people. The highways are closed off so there aren't people coming and going. Trade has stopped. The economy economy is no longer flourishing. All of these effects are being felt. And in that situation is what creates the need for Isaiah to cry out. And he begins to cry out in verse 2. He cries out for deliverance. And that's really what sin does, doesn't it? Sin creates the need to cry out for deliverance. The same thing that was true for Isaiah and the people of Judah at that time are true for us. The realities created by sin, the realities created by rebellion create the need to cry out for deliverance. For human beings cannot save themselves. And this is one of the, one of the main themes in Isaiah 33. We cannot save ourselves. Same thing true for God's people back then is true for us today. And Isaiah gives promises really all throughout the book of Isaiah that God is a God who will deliver his people. Take, for instance, Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. We read there, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. So verse 2 of chapter 33 sounds like really a response to that verse. Verse 2 we read, O Lord, be gracious to us. We long for you. Be our strength every morning, our salvation in time of distress. A recognition that they need to be saved, they need to be delivered. The same thing that we are reminded of Week by week, the same thing we are reminded of in the Christmas season, right? That God responded to our need to be saved by giving his son, Jesus Christ. This prayer from Isaiah in verses 2 through 4 is a prayer of hope. And hope is one of the themes we talk about in the Advent season. Hope, joy, peace, and love. When we talk about hope that is rooted in God's word, when we talk about the hope that we have for salvation, what kind of a hope is it? Is it like a hope that a young child will get the present he or she asks for for Christmas? Is it like hoping that your favorite team will win the big game? Is it like hoping that you will get a promotion at work? No, it's like none of those things. Hoping in God is rooted in his promises. He has given a promise that he will redeem his people. He has given a promise that he will save his people and be gracious to them. Hoping in God is rooted in his goodness. He is a good God. He is a good God, concerned for the good of his own. And hoping in God is rooted in his power, his ability to save. He is not part of this creation. He is not limited by the forces of nature. He can deliver his people. He has the power to save. So hoping in God is hoping in his power. And the power of God is is front and center for this entire prophecy, isn't it? God is the God who scatters the inhabitants merely as he raises his voice. There's a common thread running through this prophecy and really the entire scriptures that when human leaders are given power, they tend to exalt themselves. We have seen this throughout the Bible. Genesis 6, the kings of the earth 
tried to exalt themselves to the places of the gods. God responds by sending the flood. Genesis 11, the men of the earth conspire together to to build a staircase into the heavens that they may exalt themselves. And every time that happens, God responds by showing and asserting that he is God alone. Nehemiah chapter 9, you are the Lord, you alone, you have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You preserve all of them. The host of heaven worships you. The idolatrous desire of man is to exalt himself, but that place is reserved for God alone. So here we have Assyria appointed to bring calamity unto God's people for their disobedience. But in the midst of that, the king of Assyria can say, well, look at, how, look at how powerful I am. Look at how exalted I will be. And God says, no, when you have finished your destruction, you too will be destroyed. For you are not a God like me. You do not exist the same level, the same plane that I do. I alone am God. I alone am God. So Isaiah cries out to God. He remembers his people. He remembers his people. It's important to remember that as God uses a nation like Assyria to be brought against his people, Judah. It's not as if God's loyalties are shifting. God's loyalties do not change. God's people are God's people. And his promise rests secure. So then in chapter 33, we are brought to this prophecy of judgment. And we see that God uh, comes to judge both outside of his people and within his people as well. God is moved to action at a certain point in this chapter. Can you tell where it is? It's in verse 10. Verse 10, God says, Now I will arise. He is the exalted one. He is the only one who is God. But now in verse 10, he shows that he will be moved to action. And verses 11 and 12 seem to be referring back to verse 1. Like God saying to Assyria, If you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. If you are a destroyer, you too will be destroyed. That word would be fulfilled later on when God, the angel of the Lord, will go through the camp of the Assyrians as they're arrayed against God's people. And 185,000 Assyrians will be taken out in their military camp just by the power of God alone. And ultimately, King Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, he himself will die by the sword as his own two sons will rise up against him. And they will kill him when he is worshiping in the temple of his God. And that would make sense as we think about the judgment of God. Isaiah prays to God. God, come to us, save us, deliver us, forgive us of our sins, cleanse us. You would think, okay, now God comes and he delivers his people from the power of the Assyrians. But that's not all that God does. God comes to bring judgment within the household of God as well. And here we see a lot of the Christmas dynamics, and particularly as we think about the stanza we're considering today of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, the Lord of might, who spoke from Sinai's height, who gives the law. For if we are to grasp something of the Christmas story, we need to grasp the enormity of God's holiness. And he is the same holy God to Assyria, to Judah, to us, to everyone. God is the same God of holiness to everyone. It's not as if he is holy judge to those outside of his people and he is lenient father. 
The father who just brushes past sin, who uh, his, his kids can do no wrong. God is the same God of holiness to all. And this prophecy recognizes that tension when it says, who of us can dwell with consuming fire? Right? The, the sinners where in Zion are said to be trembling. The sinners in Zion are said to be trembling. So who of us can dwell with consuming fire? Perhaps you noticed that a lot of that language is similar to Psalm 15. And Psalm 15 asks, who can dwell on God's holy hill? Who can dwell with God? And of course, Psalm 15 answers in ways that describe someone impressive in terms of their holiness. Isaiah 33 answers in a similar way. Who can dwell with God? It says this, He who walks righteously speaks what is right, who rejects gain from extortion and keeps his hand from accepting bribes, who stops his ears against plots of murder and shuts his eyes against contemplating evil. This is the man who will dwell on the heights. This is the man who will dwell with God whose refuge will be the mountain fortress. His bread will be supplied. Water will not fail him. Verses 15 and 16. This is the man or woman who will dwell with God, who enjoys fellowship with him. So how are we to think about this? How are we to think about places in Scripture? Psalm 15, Psalm 24, Isaiah 33. The righteous are the ones who dwell with God. God comes in judgment against Assyria, which seems to make sense, but then God comes in judgment against his own. And the people who survive that judgment are the ones who are righteous, the ones who are impressive in terms of their holiness, the way that the, what we just read describe people in those ways. Doesn't accept bribes, who doesn't listen to plots of murder, shuts his eyes against contemplating all evil. How should we think about this? I want to be careful how to understand this and how uh, God's word gives us these passages that talk about the righteousness and the holiness of the people of God. So we'll say a few things. The first thing that we might say is this. The overarching message of Isaiah is one that acknowledges the guilt of God's people. For instance, we could think of Isaiah chapter 6, where the prophet is caught up into uh, the heavenlies, given this glorious vision of God. Isaiah, who's perhaps one of the holiest people in Judah at that time, and what does he say? He says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. All of God's people share in this guilt. That's one of the overarching messages of Isaiah. Second, we might say that salvation by grace is consistently represented by Isaiah. We had that verse in chapter 30 that we read earlier. The Lord waits to be gracious to you. He exalts himself to show mercy to you. He is a merciful God who hears the prayers of the humble, who hears the prayers of those who cry out to him. So, corporate guilt, salvation by grace. But we also might say in connection with this that is that salvation by grace is a holistic endeavor. As Reformed Christians, we make sure that, that we camp out on these correct and glorious doctrines like justification by faith alone, which is the doctrine where we, we learn about how sinners are reconciled to God, which is really our main problem here on earth, right? How can human beings, guilty, sinful, be reconciled to God? When people hear the message of the gospel, they hear the message of Jesus Christ, and they are called to trust in what he has done for them. 
And as they hear that message and trust in Jesus, God forgives their sins and he says that they are perfectly righteous. Justification by faith. Trust in what Christ has done. And so what might we say then to passages like this? Well, we would say that as we, we hear about the righteousness of the people of God, in some sense, whenever we hear about a perfect righteousness of God's people, we are to be reminded of the righteousness of our Savior, that it points us to Jesus Christ. And yet, the Bible doesn't really let us off the hook so easily, right? Because the, the Bible also tells us that salvation by grace doesn't mean that those who are justified go on living just as wicked as before. Rather, salvation by grace is an ongoing, it's a holistic matter. It's a work of God where God doesn't abandon his people after he has forgiven them, but he abides with them and he, and he works on them and he sanctifies them and he smooths out their rough edges by his spirit through faith in Christ. John Calvin explained it this way. And, and he would say that when we trust in Christ as, as persons, we are forgiven and we are cleansed and we are declared righteous. So that personally we are justified. And then because personally we are justified, our works, even though they are imperfect, so our striving to obey the law of God, our striving to obey the commandments of God, even though all of those works are imperfect, because we are justified, those works are justified as well. It's like a cause and effect chain. So then, because of our union with Christ, and by the Spirit of God being with us, even though we have works that are in many ways imperfect, they, can still, they are still obedient, right? We strive to obey the law of God. And these works show that we are different than those who are not joined to Christ. And show we are a people living for our king. See, the church is to be different. We are to be different. And because of the spirit of Christ, we are so. In small ways, in imperfect ways. And of course, we always fail to be perfect. But these passages create a tension. They point us to the righteousness of our Savior, but then they also say that God will abide with you and create in you a righteousness that will show that he is a holy God who can create a righteous people. Verse 5 in our passage, the Lord will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, not just because he expels evil, but also because he creates the good. God creates the good in us by his grace. That is what God does. A man, a woman justified, being sanctified. That is the one which verse 16 tells us will dwell in the heights with his or her God. And that brings us to this glorious representation of God being on top of a mountain and having a city filled with peace. A city filled with flourishing. There's a righteous king, a powerful king. You will see the king in his beauty, it says. What king is that talking about? The people of Judah at that time looked to their king, King Hezekiah, and they looked to the king of Assyria, one of the most powerful kings in the world, and were they filled with confidence or fear? They were filled with fear. Filled with fear, because even though Hezekiah was not, certainly not the worst king in the history of Judah, he was ultimately probably not going to be a match 
for the king of Assyria. Isaiah 33 has a vision of a different king. A true king. One who stands above Nebuchadnezzar. One who stands above Sennacherib. One who stands above Pharaoh. See, human kings try to exalt themselves to the heavens, proclaim themselves to be divine, to give themselves a place which belongs to God alone. But verse 17 here is not talking about a human king. The king in his beauty is the vision of Yahweh himself being king. And the reason is that Isaiah is saying he's seeing a problem. Israel said, we want a king way, way back in the days of the judges, in the days of Samuel. We want a king like the rest of the nations. We want a king to rule over us like the rest of the nations. The problem was that from that point forward, Israel became a very average player in the game of world power and world dominance. And Isaiah is saying, hold on here. We serve and we worship a God and, and he looks down upon the earth and all of these kings of the earth are like nothing to him. They are as nothing to him. Sennacherib is nothing to him. He's much more powerful than all of these kings. So the glorious vision that God gives to Isaiah is God himself coming to rule as king. And in that day, Assyria will be a distant memory. Where is the one who used to taunt us in the streets? See, Isaiah is speaking of these people with an incomprehensible tongue. Back then, it would have been very shameful for people who came against, uh, came against your tribe, your nation, your people, to stay in your capital city and, and be speaking a different language because it would be a reminder of their dominance over you. Isaiah will say there will come a day when all of that is a distant memory. And so Isaiah gives this vision of God calling his people up to him and bringing them up to a mountain. O come, O come, Lord of might. The writer for our Christmas carol, uh, John Mason Neal, got that from verse 22, which says, The Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. It is he who will save us. And this shows how all of this can be tied together. An oppressed people crying out to God, crying out to God for deliverance, and God responds not only by coming in judgment, but by purifying a people for himself. God, God must be king. God must be the one to come as king. The world is too flawed. The curse of sin is too far-reaching for salvation and redemption and safety and flourishing to come by anyone but by God himself. And that's the story of Christmas, isn't it? God himself coming to reign as king because only he, only he can make everything right. But God is a God who is unapproachable. God is a God who is infinite in his holiness and his righteousness and his power. And this stanza, O come, O come, Lord of might, is trying to get us to remember that at Christmas, what we must remember is that the eternal God, the holy God, almighty, infinite, eternal came to earth to reign and to rule, but to save. The same God who spoke on Sinai came to the earth. Let all mortal flesh keep silence. Why? Christ our God to earth descendeth. And that word descendeth stretched out over six notes in that beautiful Christmas carol, let all mortal flesh keep silence. Christ our God to earth descendeth. 
in order for God to reign as king while also saving us from sin, it's not just that he calls us to himself on a mountain. First, he comes down to us. God comes down to us, and that ought to fill us with awe. That ought to fill us with gratitude and and strike us. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, given him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Isaiah 33 gives us the vision of Yahweh, our God, being the king, the true king. It all comes together in the fullness of time, not as God drawing us up to himself, but God coming down to us. The Lord is our judge. So the judge came to earth to be the judged. The Lord is our lawgiver. The one who spoke from Sinai comes to earth to fulfill the law on our behalf. The Lord is our king. The king came humbly, born in a cave, laid in a manger. The king of kings, the only God. Christ our God descends to us so that we may behold the king in his beauty forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your promises for this season. May it strike us that eternal God, the one who spoke all things into existence, came to us to save us. Father, we think of your people of old. You gave them these glorious prophetic visions, saying that one day you would come and reign and rule as king. Father, we know that we can look to Christ coming, the king in his beauty, who left heaven's glory to come and to redeem his own. We thank you and we praise you. May you impress that message upon our hearts and always make us grateful for it. In Christ's name, amen. Let's sing number 318 as we close. Our service this morning, 318, Lo, he comes with clouds descending, verses 1, 2, and 5. 1, 2, and 5, let's stand together and sing.